Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In today's episode of Health Theory with Dr. Molly Malouf, we discuss why you should measure your blood sugar before it's an issue, the problems with modern medicine, who would benefit more from carbohydrates, and how to recover from a stressful lifestyle. Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Molly Malouf. She's a concierge doctor to some of the most successful executives in Silicon Valley, and she's worked as an advisor or strategy consultant over 20 companies in the Bay Area in the biotechnology, digital health, nutrition, and food industries. But what I find so interesting is that you take a really holistic approach to medicine that I would say goes beyond even your traditional functional doctor. Mm -hmm. So what's behind the looking at the totality of everything? You know, I designed this practice a few years ago with this grand vision that I thought, what, what if you could build a practice around making people as healthy as possible? But in that process of developing this practice, I realized we need to figure out what health even is, right? How do you measure health? And so to me, once I started digging into this question, I realized that like health is affected by so many different things, by where you live, how you live, the house you live in, the people you live with the food you eat, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the supplements you take, the way you exercise, the way you grew up, where you grew up. I mean, it gets into so many different aspects of your life. So then I realized that it's not just about qualitative descriptions, it's also about quantitative measurements. So I started looking at what are normal ranges, and I realized that we consider um, borderline pre-diabetic ranges to be healthy in America. And once you hit pre-diabetes, you're actually starting to lose organ reserve, which means you're starting, to, you're starting to lose part of your beta cell function. You're starting to damage your kidneys. You're starting to damage your blood vessels. So like if somebody's even above 90 for fasting glucose, I'm starting to say, look, like the closer you get to 100, the more damage you're doing to your body. So really I'm trying to get people into a much lower range of fasting glucose. And I had this hypothesis that you could lower fasting glucose through fasting more, and it does, <laughs> in fact. <laughs> so um, then there's postprandial glucose, right? What there's is that? Postprandial glucose, so after meals. Okay. Prandial means to eat, right? Okay. So after meal glucose is not measured by most doctors. Typically, doctors are only really concerned about you if you hit the pre-diabetic pre range. Um, but I, I care about people who are even before pre-diabetes. It's really interesting. Now, thinking about somebody listening to this right now, mm -hmm. I know what they're thinking is, okay, wait, what is optimal health? What does that look like? Yeah. And then, then getting into the measurements and understanding what the um, changes are going to be that they need to make in their lifestyle become a little bit easier because this is like the topic of health is so overwhelming for people yeah. and they don't even know where to begin. So um, you said that you started wanting to define what health really is. Yeah. What is health? 
the old definition I used to use was the complete absence of disease in infirmary, right? Mental and physical well-being. But then I realized that that's a utopian vision. Really, the true definition of health that I, I really fundamentally believe in now is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. So it's not just, it's not about reaching this peak place. It's about life hits you with something and you adapt and self-manage. The problem with the healthcare system today is that it's about managed care. It's literally you hand your health to someone else to manage for you. Mm. That is not self-management. So it's not even, it really shouldn't even be called a healthcare system at all. It's the sickness billing industrial complex. Wow. That's what it does. It bills for disease and it codes for disease so that insurance companies get paid. It's not about making you healthy. The, the big interest I have in health is this concept of health span because it's about living as long as possible and compressing your morbidity to the last few years of your life. Rather than spending the last 30 years of your life falling apart and being put back together, put back together by the healthcare system. Mm. Being healthy means you're eating the right foods for your body, for your genetics, for your environment, for the time of the year you live in, that you're trying to avoid things that cause metabolic derangements like packaged processed foods filled with fat, sugar, and salt. Um, and it's about moving your body in accordance to the way you were evolved to, to move, which is more than we're moving today. <laughs> Most people are incredibly sedentary. Most people are not lifting weights the way they should be. Most people are not doing yoga, not maintaining flexibility, not, not maintaining the facets of health that we need to age properly and expand our health span. Now, I love that. So if we're going to think about the health span and really being able to enjoy our lives, even mm -hmm. as, as we age, like what are the key things in our lifestyle that we can do? And this is probably the thing I love most about you is <laughs> you've got a really freakish focus on um, a very wide range of what will bucket as lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but it was every, you were talking about pollution and how pollution can spike your blood sugar. I yeah. mean, like you look at it in a way that that's super interconnected. Yeah. I mean, you have to. I mean, like this is systems biology at the end of the day. And I've been very much influenced by Lee Hood who founded the Institute of Systems Biology, but he's always been this um, visionary around seeing the person in the context of the world, rather than just as this disease, right, that doctors label you with. Um, that, that was what a lot, of I, a lot of what I experienced in the hospital was just literally labeling people as diseases, and that is so dehumanizing. To me, people are not just the individual person, but they're part of this giant ecosystem. We're part of this sort of like giant superorganism. Right? A population of people is so interconnected that you can't really just look at the individual. You have to look at everything around them. And so taking um, a person that's in this context, mm -hmm. knowing that, okay, the fantasy answer is like you go live on some remote island and it's beautiful sure. and all that. But what, what should a lifestyle look like if you're trying to, like for me, I'll just make it about me. Okay, sure. Uh, I want to live <laughs> forever. Great. And not sort of theoretically, like, I actually find it interesting, which I, if I remember right, you <laughs> think that's crazy, but we, I, we can so get I'm into like, that. Okay, so like, I'm the kind of person who holds lots of paradoxes in her brain. So like, on one hand, I'm a transhumanist who does believe that we will download consciousness and have a version of ourselves still alive, functioning through, but like, do I think my body's gonna live forever? No, like, unfortunately, this is just a, meat sack that's gonna wear out. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we get the most rad mileage out of our meat Yes, sack? now that's the key, right? Like how do we get the mileage out of this body? As we age, we lose organ reserve, unfortunately starting at age 30. So we start, our hormones start declining. Mm -hmm. Our muscle mass, if we don't maintain it, will start declining um, more, a little bit later in life, more hitting your 50s. But mostly it's because our, our hormones are starting to, starting to decline. Um, 
And then a lot of people don't realize that you will be wearing out your pancreas the more you shove sugar into your system. So a lot of people develop age-related diabetes later in life, literally simply because they've worn out their pancreas. So like, if you want to have ex expanded health span and improved longevity, you have to take care of your organs while you're young. You can't just wait till you're 60 to start caring about your aging. So I believe that in order to age well, you have to have, you have, to have flexibility, you have to have um, cardiovascular health, you have to have um, muscle mass, right? So weightlifting is really helpful for both of those. Um, I regularly test these things through like Dexafit, for example, is a company um, that most people can go and affordably get tested just to find out what your body composition is. You got to make sure you don't have too much visceral fat because visceral fat is going to be toxic to your liver. It's going to raise your fasting glucose. You need to be measuring these things to find out where you're at so you know where, you're, where you can improve. It's kind of like there's like hundreds of things you can do to optimize your health. The question is, what do you need to do? And to me, the way that you figure that out is through knowing what questions to ask yourself and knowing what to measure. So it's about measuring your biomarkers. It's about knowing your predispositions genetically. And it's about um, really figuring out what are your body's weaknesses so you can make sure to take care of those areas. It's really interesting because this has become like a whole thing. I remember when I was back at Quest, mm -hmm. we um, brought this New York Times bestselling author. We, we created this content and his whole book, I, if I remember right, the book was called The Calorie Myth. Mm -hmm. And he said, not all calories are created equal. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we got lit up. And people went bananas in the um, the comment feed on oh, YouTube. Yeah. It was so crazy. We yeah. took it down. We, wow. we could not believe the response. And so I, that's a slightly separate issue, but it's tied to this notion of individualized health. That yeah. like things aren't, it's not a closed system, right? And each system is a little bit different yeah. than the other. And so to say, oh, well, you can't violate the second law of thermodynamics, it's like, but now, like that <laughs> argument is, is sort of gone away. But this, like, no, I'm talking no, no. like we can still, five years. We can talk about this argument. First of all, we not we're not a closed system. Okay, we are not a closed system. Our metabolisms function more like a thermostat than they do, like a a, a physics equation, perfect a perfect physics equation. Like, basically, when a person gains a lot of weight, they've literally changed their metabolic set point, and their body's hormones want them to stay there. So you literally are fighting against a hormonal system change, system level change that doesn't want you to be a smaller weight. There's actually a study that showed that people started eating a lot more food and they found that what it did was just raise their metabolic rate. What happens when you eat less food? It lowers your metabolic rate, okay? So like, you don't necessarily see, see these shifts that fit the mathematical equations that are perfectly if it was just calories in, calories out. And I think a lot of it comes down to the microbiome. You literally have trillions of organisms that are not you growing in your gut. So if you are like, you're more than just you, you're more than just your own cells. You actually have, like they're affecting your metabolism. So if we know that that's the setup, mm -hmm. that it's not a closed system, we're a part of this sort of grand ecosystem, how do people begin the process of N equals one testing to mm -hmm. figure out what they need to do without it becoming overwhelming? Well, I like to look at labs, right? Let's start from outcomes and then go backwards rather than starting from where you're at and going forwards. Um, so if you want to lower your postprandial glucose, you need to look at what you're eating in every meal. And one of the biggest levers for lowering postprandial glucose is lowering your carbohydrate consumption. Now at the same time, if you raise your fat really high, you end up with physiologic insulin resistance. So some people who go paleo we'll see that their, their fasting glucose might go up a little bit because they're gonna develop slight physiologic insulin resistance as they increase fat, which does cause some insulin resistance, which is why a lot of the high carb people are like, 
everyone should be high carb, low fat because that'll because that, insulin resistance causes diabetes. Well, insulin resistance does cause some diabetes, but it doesn't cause all diabetes. So when I see a person um, lower their their you know for example sugar and refined carbs, it's a really easy way to like drop their postprandial glucose. At the same time, fasting glucose may not respond as effectively or, or, or as fast. So getting a person to intermittently fast is actually a great way to lower fasting glucose. Another thing you can do if you want to lower your postprandial glucose is you can exercise after meals. Because it actually your, your, your muscles do not need insulin when they're moving. <laughs> Turns out you need a lot less insulin when you're exercising. So a lot of people don't get this. Like this is like an like a interesting, um, interesting fact. So I had been fasting for three days. I was at a retreat and I had developed a little bit of um, insulin resistance just from the fact that I wasn't eating any food. My body was basically in a ketotic state. So I, <laughs> I did this thing I should not have done, which is the worst thing you can do after a three-day fast is eat carbs. And we had made some pancakes and they were made of sweet potatoes and rice flour, right? Um, and cooked in coconut oil. Seems healthy, not healthy. So <laughs> not for my metabolism. So my blood sugar spikes to super physiologic levels, not, not good. I'd measured it, I said, oh shit, I need to do something. I go outside, I do 30 minutes of yoga, drop my blood sugar 60 points in 30 minutes. Whoa. Yeah. I saw that what I had done was a big mistake and I fixed it. I adapted and self-managed in the face of some metabolic adversity. So you did that because you're wearing a continuous I glucose, a glucose monitor. monitor. Yeah. Now what's interesting, so going back to when you're moving, you don't need the As much insulin. insulin. Yeah. So you're saying there's something about the motion of the muscles that allows them to intake mm -hmm. the, the glucose. glucose? Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. It's fascinating. It's like little, I mean, I actually learned this many years ago when I was working at a diabetes camp and we had these type one diabetic cyclists come in and talk about what they were doing as cyclists. And they were, they were like on tiny amounts of insulin compared to most people because they're like, we don't need it because we're exercising and we're, we're burning our sugar in real time. It's interesting. I, I've often heard that working out is one of the things that gets prescribed to people that are struggling either pre-diabetic or diabetic. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I never asked the follow-up question of why. Yeah. I mean, I've been, this is what I'm, I'm always asking is why. It's almost like there's two camps of thought around um, diabetes on one end, which is like metabolically unhealthy end, and then the performance end, which is the athletes, right? It's almost like each group, there's like the high carb, low fat people and the low carb, high fat people on each side. And so there's people who think that you fix diabetes with low carb, high fat, and there's people who think you fix diabetes with high carb, low fat. What I have found is that you can actually get the same drop in glucose and the same drop in weight in, in two different programs, a keto program versus a high, high carb, low fat program, program in the course of a year, I'm seeing the same drops in people with diabetes. So I think both can work. It depends on the individual. I mean, Peter Atia basically has said that 50% of people do not respond to keto. So the question is, is are they better adapted to a high carb, low fat diet or, or maybe more of a balanced diet? But I think that we are going to learn that like, there are certain times in your life that you might, you might be better suited for a high carb diet. When I was in my 20s, I had such an easy time eating carbs. It was like no problem. Now that I'm in my 30s, it's like my, my, my metabolism has shifted. Mm -hmm. And I have to be really careful with carbs. And I really have to eat them in accordance to how much I exercise. And are you saying that based on the spike in glucose or based on um, weight gain? Like Definitely weight. But all, I mean, it just seems like I'm more likely to put weight on when mm -hmm. I eat carbohydrates now. But I also think that, um, you know, like I, I was able to drop my blood glucose like a point in a year um, from hemoglobin A1C, uh, from 5.6 to 4.6 and, and over the course of a year. 
and a lot of it was carbohydrate reduction. And for people who don't know what that is, explain it, because this is It's intriguing. the average glucose over the course of about three months. It's checking how much your tissues are glycated, Yes, right? exactly. Just kind of like rust, it's oxidative damage. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the crazy things I've heard you talk to in mm -hmm. terms of what can impact your um, blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. So you told one really cool story that I'd, I'd love for you to talk about here, where you were working with a woman she was either diabetic or pre-diabetic pre and just could not get the numbers down. She had a really healthy diet, but she had a ton of emotional stress in her life. Like a, a basically an emotionally abusive partner. Psychological stress from relationships, in my opinion, is like the leading driver of stress in people's lives. Um, I mean, a lot of people struggle with, with toxic coworkers and bosses every day. And that is like, that is like a really big problem for people because every time you get this, these cortisol spikes, it increases your insulin resistance because cortisol is intimately tied to insulin. So cortisol also makes you more likely to crave carbohydrates because your body wants to protect itself. I basically just did an experiment with her where we put a glucose monitor on her and we, I said, try to spend some time away from him, see what happens. And she just noticed that whenever she wasn't in the same vicinity of him, her blood sugar was better. You talk to me a little bit more about stress in ways that people may not realize either how it's affecting them or just what a big, um, factor it is in overall health? I mean, a lot of people that I see are like business travelers. And so they act like they're immune to travel related stress. But I do believe that like circadian rhythm um, imbalances are, are not great for your health because they throw off your cortisol melatonin cycle. So cortisol is created during the day, melatonin is secreted at night. A lot of people are um, a lot of people with disrupted sleep have disrupted um, circadian rhythms, and that's a huge stress on people's metabolisms. We all know about shift workers, right? Like they are much higher; they have much higher rates of diabetes and cancer, partially because of the metabolic derangements that come from eating in the middle of the night and basically like not sleeping normally. And then if you travel regularly, the same thing happens to you. Mm. And if we start pinning things down that people should be doing to make all this information actionable, sure. um, where would we end up? So we know that we should be monitoring our glucose levels. We, we don't want those to spike too high. Yeah, We've you want to about... monitor your glucose because you want to be able to figure out, is your diet contributing to postprandial or post-meal glucose disturbances, which are not checked for by most doctors, right? And so the, figure, the question is, is are you going to go high carb, low fat to fix it? Are you going to go low carb, high, high fat to fix it? Frankly, the biggest fix is whole foods, real whole natural foods that are not packaged and processed things that are unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, you said something like your food should look alive or something. Like I like living foods. If you're going to eat meat, know where it comes from, know who killed it, really care so much that you don't eat as much of it because meat is a problem. Like I'm a big fan of meat, but like we're all eating too much of it. Let's get real. It's not good for the environment. It's not good. too much of it's bad for our health. Like five servings of vegetables and fruits a day. That's how you feed your microbiome. You got to have a healthy microbiome if you want to live a long life. Now you've talked about, I forget who, but somebody was like, oh, you should do a 30 day challenge where you eat nothing but produce. Yeah, the, me the medical medium like tells people to do this, but I started reading all these reviews online of people who did this and I was just like, there's just a bunch of misery in this. <laughs> like, surprisingly, it doesn't, I mean, like some people benefit from it, but I mean, I did a month on, on keto this year. It was fascinating, but I didn't necessarily feel great by the end of the month. Like, I was just craving, craving vegetables. What do you think? So I went keto, like keto, keto, yeah. where I was probably pulling 1.5s to 2.5s okay. for nine months. Whoa. It was amazing. Wow. It changed my relationship to hunger. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever done, but I did start losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And so then I started cycling, 
Okay, that's story one. Story two is doing something like a 30-day um, produce only mm -hmm. where I want to know like what what are you worried would happen? So I'm not really worried anything dangerous would happen except for you might be uncomfortable for a month. But why? Why would you be uncomfortable? Um, like well, I'm terrified of it as well. I mean like I want to do it just because I love to challenge my body. But um, to me the biggest issue is satiety. Like if you're not eating, it's really hard to get enough protein through just plants. Mm. I think it's, I, I, I think that the, the thing is, is it's about lifestyle and convenience and are you gonna be able to maintain this for a month? Like, when you eat regular, when you are carb burning mostly, um, you just have to make sure you have enough fuel on you. So you need to be like stoking that fire regularly. And that means that like, like if you're just eating fruits and vegetables, it's, you have to make sure that you plan for your meals because you're gonna be hungry all day long. But let's say I was gonna do that. Can I legitimately eat mangoes, watermelon, grapes? I like... would wear a glucose monitor this entire time and just see what happens to your blood sugar. Like, I, I totally intend to try this, but probably after Burning Man. <laughs> 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 because like, I, you know, like, I know what's working for my body right now and I feel like if I just go, I, I'm legitimately wondering if I'm going to gain weight if I eat that much fruit, you know? Yeah, Like a hundred percent. I just wonder, cause like, the thing is, is um, when you were on keto for 12 months, you, you probably started losing muscle mass because to me, ketogenic dieting is sending the signal to your body you're in a famine, mm. right? It's like there's low fuel, like that's, when you eat a lot of carbs, it's like you're sending the signal to your body that there's, there's a food available, right? It's like the summertime phenotype versus the wintertime phenotype. And I think that there probably is something to, us being able to eat more carbs in the summertime, I think we're more insulin sensitive because we have more sunlight, more vitamin D. That's There's actually a relationship between vitamin D and insulin sensitivity. And then in the wintertime, it makes sense that you would want to lower carbs because you're not moving as, you're not moving as much. And carbs are really the fuel you need to move. And you can totally fuel on fat, but it's just all the research I've been doing on fat metabolism and athletes is that, you know, ketogenic dieting and low carb dieting is really good for athletes who are insulin resistant. But if you're insulin sensitive, it may not help you as much. If we were to do the vegetables only, continuous glucose monitoring, is it purely that people think it will have such a positive impact on the microbiome? Like why, why is there so much hype from certain people sure. around that? Like I get the high fat because of the logic behind it, right. anti-inflammatory, switching your fuel burning system, all that. Like I could walk yeah. people through the logic, but I don't actually understand the logic. So yeah, the high fat people are trying to lower the amount of insulin output. The high carb people are trying to lower insulin resistance, okay? okay. The big problem with the American diet is we have too much fats and too much refined carbs. So we have too much insulin output and we have too much insulin resistance, okay? That's where people are getting diabetes. Um, the problem with, with the American diet fundamentally is that since the 1970s, we actually haven't added that much more dairy and that much more meat to our diets. The things that we've added to our diets since the 1970s have been refined sugar, refined flour, and refined vegetable oils. Where do you find these three things? Packaged processed snack foods. Mm. And you find them in fast foods, right? So that's the that's like that's what we need to do as a culture. Like get on real to me, like what I've learned through all this metabolism research is that most people, the vast majority of the bell curve, would benefit from just eating whole foods. Just real foods. The refined vegetable oils are causing the insulin resistance and the refined flours are causing too much insulin output. And that's most people in America. That's like the middle of the country, right? They're eating the fried foods, they're the fried fats are the worst, the fried, fried carbs are the worst. That's what ages your blood vessels, ages your skin, gives you wrinkles. I mean, that's, that's the worst of it. What's your take on um, heated olive oil? I think the, the, the question is, is, 
are they becoming more rancid as we overheat them? Like, question, question is, is like, what's the temperature that it's gonna burn at? Yeah. And are you going too high? Like, that's really what it's all about. Do I still roast vegetables and olive oil? Yes. Am I perfect? No. I'm moving more and more towards like, trying to do more steamed things. And honestly though, like, I feel like if you're gonna be, like, if you're gonna be bad, like, that's not nearly as bad as going out and eating a funnel cake, okay? Like, fair. come on. Very fair. <laughs> so my thing is, so I've been almost, for a while I was almost a carnivore, truly. And if you'd asked me probably six years ago, like if you need to eat vegetables, I'd have said, not really, like you can if you want, but if it, you know, and, and digestively I was fine. Yeah. And so I was like, yep, I'm good. Uh, I got super lean, sure. it, the leanest I've I ever bet. been. And, but I had joint pain, like crazy. Inflammation. It was madness. I had this discussion with a guy last week. This guy says, well, I've been doing keto. He's a young entrepreneur, like skinny, like not skinny, but lean guy. Mm running a, a very successful company. And he's like, but my joints are, are killing me, my knees. And I'm like, how many, how many servings of vegetables are you eating per day? And he's like, maybe one. I'm like, well, would you pour just meat on a compost bin and then expect like everything in your garden to grow perfectly? The microbiome of the soil is what grows beautiful vegetables. You need that in your gut. Your gut, your roots are on the inside, right? Your intestines are like your roots. So you have to have your, the soil, your stool, your poop is basically your soil. And to make the richest, healthiest mm. soil, you have to feed it fiber. And you have to feed it enough fiber. Problem is, is that there's a lot of people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so when they eat fiber and they eat FODMAPs, they get all these digestive complaints. Mm. And for those people, one of the best things they can do is therapeutic fasting, because that actually kills off some of the bacteria that shouldn't be growing there. So it's always about maintaining this, ba this balance of our microbiome. So let's talk about therapeutic fasting. Like, what are your protocols? So if you're an athlete and you're trying to maintain muscle mass, you probably do not want to do too many extended fasts. And I'm talking like week-long fasts. Like that's a pretty heavy-duty fast. You might want to do that maybe once or twice a year. Intermittent fasting is probably best for those people who want to maintain the best muscle mass. Now, if you're trying to deal with diabetes or insulin resistance, you might want to experiment with more often, uh, fasting more often than that. But it really depends on what your outcomes are that you're trying to achieve. If you're a woman and you have polycystic ovarian disorder, you have insulin resistance. So you're gonna benefit from getting into keto ketosis, but you don't wanna stress your body out too much from too much fasting if you wanna be a fertile female. Because like you really don't wanna stress your body out as a woman. Men, can men seem to tolerate more extended fasting far easier than women do. There's always gonna be an adaptation period for anyone who's getting into fasting. So expect the first month of it to be challenging. And then it gets easier because now you're psychologically and physiologically more adapted to doing this to your body. What I have found is that the more you fast, the more your heart rate variability improves and the more actually you function better under stress. So like when I was traveling, um, and I, I always fast when I travel, I have found that I actually travel with less stress because I'm fasting rather than fasting is causing me to be stressed. And that comes from being adapted to it. So things that can improve your ability to fast more effectively are getting more fat adapted, um, getting on a whole food diet, getting, I, I always tell people try to do whole 30 for at least a month before you start doing fasting regularly. Um, just cause it gets people off of refined sugar and flour. Mm. Like you got to get off of those things if you want to fast effectively, because if you're eating those things, you're on the glycemic roller coaster. And if you're on that roller coaster, you're going to feel like garbage when you try to fast. So getting on whole foods is the first step and then doing things like 16, eight fasting. And then you can start challenging your body with more fast. So I say, try a 24 hour fast. And then the next week, try a 36 hour fast. And if you really want to like keep going, you can keep going, but with the caveat that if you're a woman, 
you might be disrupting your hormones in this process, depending on the amount of stress you have in your life. So earlier you brought up Burning Man, and <laughs> I've heard you talk about that before, yeah. and I've heard you talk about psychedelics. Sure. Uh, and in the context of people really dealing with emotions and mm -hmm. what a big role that plays. And oh, yeah. So my wife has, uh, has struggled for over three years now with massive microbiome issues, and mm. one of the things we're exploring is non-dietary causes yes. of some of her problems mm -hmm. uh, and to your point about women um, handling stress differently than men mm -hmm. so for me i don't and almost i was thinking about this today as i was listening to you i was like i'm almost certainly killing myself because of, <laughs> of how hard i work but I d i'm asymptomatic like okay so let's get let's let's dig into this a little bit first like the question is is i mean i i have a high stress life too i mean i i'm a doctor I have a job at a tech company. I advise multiple companies. I advise like five companies outside of this. I'm starting a skincare brand. I'm starting a podcast. And it's just me. I'm working hard these days, but I have serious recovery practices. So the question is, are you recovering? Right? Like I do yoga almost every evening or weight lift every other day. I do, I really sleep well. I mean, sleep is like my biggest recovery. Um, I get massage regularly. I spend time with my family and my friends. I mean, that is like super therapeutic. I'm also eating a super healthy diet. I'm not eating a lot of sugar. Like, yes, I have a stressful life, but the question is, is are, you, are you sort of adapting to it and are you self-managing through it? But getting back into psychedelics, like the, the, big, the, the big thing that I think a lot of people are missing from their health program is dealing with the trauma of their life. Every single person has trauma. Whether it's a serious adverse childhood experience that someone, that someone went through, or it was like your third grade teacher like looked at you wrong, right? Like some people literally have trauma from like one bad experience. To me, psychedelics are this really cool way that you can drop into that state of that sort of conscious subconscious state, that sort of limbo period where you're not totally unconscious, but you're still slightly conscious. So it's like you're kind of flowing through your subconscious and you're able to actually in a place of feeling in my opinion, most psychedelics make me feel pretty good. Um, you're able to deal with that trauma and dig into that trauma, which is where, which is why psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is, my, in my opinion, probably what's most effective for dealing with this stuff. You can actually get to the same place that I'm talking about, that, that place where you can do deep work into your subconscious. You can get there through meditation. You can get there through devotional practices. You can get there through a lot of different ways. Psychedelics are a shortcut, and a lot of people like shortcuts, and that's why a lot of people are really getting into this. Yeah, that is something I cannot wait for more research to come out. Like I, I'm really fascinated by especially MDMA, mm -hmm. but I'm way too chicken to try it. I mean, I, I really need to start talking about my own experiences with MDMA because I did have uh, like a profoundly beneficial experience in my late 20s using MDMA to heal from some of my own life traumas. And I haven't completely come out about this because my name is Dr. Molly. And so like talking about <laughs> MDMA in the media is like kind of controversial because I've already talked about microdosing LSD. And so, but I have actually like, I think MDMA assisted psychotherapy is going to be game changing for a lot of different forms of trauma, especially post-traumatic stress from war, mm. post-traumatic stress from sexual abuse, post-traumatic stress from, from other types of traumas. But, um, but ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is currently the only legal psychedelic that a doctor can prescribe right now. So, there, this, so this is booming. And I didn't realize how much this is happening in San Francisco to the point where there's actually a shortage of ketamine. Wow. There is actually enough of demand 
for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy that there's a shortage in pharmacies. According to the FDA, a, this, is, this is an off-label use. So it is still gray area, but it is technically legal. I mean, doctors can prescribe things off-label and do so all the time. And there's a great book called The Ketamine Papers, which I read, and I was astonished by how many uses that this is actually helping people for. This is helping people with eating disorders. It's helping people with trauma. And it's not the perfect fix. It's not necessarily like, it's not going to fix everything because you still have to do the work. You still have to do the integration after you've uncovered all this stuff. That's really what this is all about, is figuring out where is that scar, where is that trauma. Normally when people um, feel trauma and it comes up for them, they go into the stress response. They go into the reptilian brain, it's fight or flight, it's terrified, it's, their bodies are responding through elevated heart rate, sweating, panic. That is not how you heal from trauma. So what you do is you put a person in a state where they're fully relaxed, where their body feels really good. When you're on MDMA, you feel really, really good. So when you can process your, your trauma in that state, it's like, oh, I'm safe. And oh, this happened to me. And oh, I'm able to deal with this. And oh, I can move on. And that's, that's really what we want to get people to do. And so you cannot disassociate the body from the mind and the spiritual self as well. Like we can deal with the mind, we can deal with the spirituality and we can deal with the body, but like doing them all together to me is really, really, really what, what makes a big difference. And so there was this doctor in the book, The Ketamine Papers, who had designed this entire protocol of lifestyle optimization prior to administering ketamine. And I was like, that is amazing. How do you get a person to a point of better health and then get them, give them this medicine so that they can actually deal with some of their other things to get them to an even greater state of health? What I love about where we are today is that you've got somebody like you who's so well-versed in just traditional medical practice, mm -hmm. but who even in the middle of your um, getting your or doing your residency <laughs> said like, this is outdated, like we need to push it. Mm -hmm. um, and you're looking at stuff so holistically. One thing I heard you mention that I have not heard somebody um, of your uh, pedigree talk about, which is rolfing. Oh yeah. So. Oh my God. Yeah. What little I know about rolfing is that it's I'll call it um, emotional release massage. Is that seem I mean, plausible? You know that is a great way to describe it because, but it's also um, serious endorphin release massage because it's painful. Like they are moving your fascia around. So not only is it a somatic like somatic therapy where you're literally digging into your muscles. When you do rolfing, it really does remind you of almost a psychedelic state because like you're really relaxed, but you're also like experiencing this really intense pain. <laughs> and I loved, I love it personally because I have a high pain tolerance. It's not for everybody. But what I discovered in the process of rolfing was that like I could feel where that knot came from, came from. and not from like the fact that I carried that bag around an airport, but oh my God, I, that knot came from that disagreement I had with that person. And oh my God, my leg is in that position because of this thing that happened to me. Our connective tissue isn't inert. And we were taught this in medical school, that our connective tissue was inert. Part of like a lot of the world of body work and rolfing is that connective tissue is actually almost like fiber optics of our body. And it is communication, and it's part of the communication network of our, our body. And I, I think we're gonna be able to prove this through science soon, but to me, it's like, We've already discovered that the interstitial space is another organ. And I think that the connective tissue is also like another organ. Like I think that it is part of our body's um, sort of protective mechanism. Of, I think it helps us protect ourselves when we experience any type of trauma, whether it's physical trauma and we build up you know, scar tissue, 
um, or if it's emotional trauma, we build up like these contractures and these positions and these postures that reflect the way we live our lives. Like you see this all the time in technology, like where people are hunched over desks. It's like they have this posture where they're just like, they're kind of closed off and they're not really connected to people around them. They're connected to the internet. My wife's journey has made me realize that all the things like five years ago, I'd have been like, this sounds so crazy. It little, I mean, yeah. And now seeing everything that she's gone through and how many things I was dismissive of only to realize, whoa, it's actually helping her. And the other day, and I hope I'm not talking out of class here, um, but she did yoga for the first time, one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. And she was doing it as a part of trying to see if there were any non-dietary causes for her microbiome issues. And mm -hmm. she definitely has problems with stress, gets mm -hmm. stressed very easily. Mm -hmm. um, she takes on a huge workload. Mm -hmm. And because she has a high pain tolerance, she just keeps pushing through. Yeah. And so she does this session of yoga and at the end she like tears were running down oh, her face yeah. and she was like, what the hell? And yeah. my wife does not cry yeah. like ever. Her femur snapped in half. Oh wow. That's weird. Like mm -hmm. she wouldn't cry about it. It's crazy town. Mm -hmm. So for her like to have that sort of emotional release was yeah. surprising. I think it shocked her. And when she told me, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Part of it's the breath as well, right? The breath is the seat of our emotions it's a seat of our soul in so many ways like the, when you get into these deep breathing exercises it's like you're finally sending that signal to your body that you're safe and you're finally sending that signal to your body that you can rest and you're and like it, it, you're literally finally giving your body that ability to say i can just have some balance from this sympathetic overdrive to this like state of i can be calm mm. i'm okay i mean that's what we need to be sending the signals to our body more often so for, I'll give you an example. Last weekend, um, my friend had a panic attack right when I arrived to her place. Right in front of me, she's having like a full-on panic attack. And I'm like, oh, I didn't expect this. So we sit down on the couch and I go, tell me what's going on in your life. Like, she's like, I'm not, I don't feel stressed out. I mean, everything seems pretty great in my life right now. I'm like, well, like walk me through what's going on in your life in the last month or two. She's like, well, my co-founder cut me out of the company and um, was my best friend for like three years and we almost dated, but we didn't. And basically I feel like I'm losing a family member and I'm like, oh yeah, you're not stressed at all, <laughs> right? You're not stressed at all. You, you literally had a major emotional hit, major psychological stress a month ago. And now it's starting to show itself. Now it's starting to show itself in your body. And like, and like isn't it interesting that you're losing your hair when you had just a major loss in your life, right? There's always a psychological component to a physical experience. What are a few quick lifestyle things that basically everybody should have dropped? Whole food, got that one. Whole food that you can see and look at, right? Um, I mean, six cups of vegetables plus. I mean, I like to do, I mean, minimum six cups a day is like my goal. Um, I love the Walls protocol. I love getting cruciferous vegetables, colorful vegetables, and um, sulfur, sulfurous vegetables, um, cause that's your medicine. And then I like to get a serving of fermented foods every day to feed that microbiome as sort of serving of seaweed. I really got this from Terry Walls. If you haven't interviewed her yet, she's amazing. Um, moving your body in accordance to the way that it's evolved to move, right? So walk way more often. Um, do challenge your body with weightlifting regularly. You've got to have the muscle mass if you want to age well for the bone density. You got to have the, you got to lift weights. You got to do those two things. Flexibility is everything because if you if you age and you are not flexible, you will fall and you will break a bone. So you want to main, maintain flexibility and pliability as you get older. Um, and then you have to take care of your brain on a day to day basis. So really ask like I have daily practices. I have like a whole note, notebook that I make myself and it has all my daily self care practices that I go through. But the biggest, most impactful ones are how do I reframe 
something that's been bothering me as something positive. I mean, reframing, reframing, reframing. You have to like shift your brain. You have to literally build the brain that you want to have to keep you mentally fit. Um, gratitude practices everyone's trying to do, but you really, I mean, really just being grateful for, for everything you have in your life. Not comparing yourself to others. We could all benefit from less screen time. Mm. You know, we could really all benefit from just tracking our screen time. My friend Britt Morin um, of Brit & Co, she just did this challenge where she tried to only use screen time from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I mean, this is a woman who's like a hardcore CEO, and she was just amazed at how much it improved her mental well-being. Like, we're all addicted to our phones, and it's making us miserable, and we don't realize how it's affecting us. I mean, it's really, it's really harming the children of our country the most because they're growing up in this environment where their self-esteem is based off of their internet persona, mm. and that's not healthy. Yeah. yeah. All right, before I ask my last question, where can these guys find you online? Okay. Instagram, drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co, same as my website, and then mmaloof at gmail.com. I give away my email because whatever, I just don't spam me. Um, Twitter, mollymaloofmd. Cool. All right, of all the amazing things you've told us today, what is the one change that people could make that would have the biggest impact on their health? Connect more with your community and stop isolating yourself. Wow. Get off of your computer get out of your house and go see people that you love. Because they, that, that is the number one indicator of happiness long-term for people. Wow, that's awesome. Unexpected, but awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming on the show. That Thank was fantastic. You. Absolutely. So fun. Guys, trust me when I say you're gonna wanna go listen to as many interviews as you can find of this woman. She is, as you saw here, fun, funny, and very insightful into the world of what I'll call the entire gestalt of things having to do with health. Somebody that can talk about psychedelics as fast as she talks about whole foods and really <laughs> looking at the whole human, the whole human experience, understanding that we need to heal from trauma. That her answer was that you need to get out and connect with people. That is the perspective from which she's looking at health, which makes sense to me because it's looking at real results. What's actually going to work? Not what you can sell, not what you can monetize, not even necessarily always what you can measure, but what is working. And focusing on that, I think, is what we all need to do in terms of getting our health to the point that we want to get it. She is really, really intriguing. You guys are gonna to wanna to dive deeply into her world and check out what she's doing. And she's doing a lot, as she said, she's got a lot cooking and hopefully a lot more stuff coming out and you guys will love it all. And an absolute blast researching her. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Thank you again. That was fantastic. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.